I hope it's become clear to you as we make our way through the book of Romans and even as we go through this eighth chapter, Paul is taking us through an unfolding body of Christian doctrine in which these individual truths all have their place in part of the whole. There's a sense in which of each of these individual truths in some senses mean nothing on their own because they'd just be hanging in midair with nothing else to support them. Each of them are essential like links in a chain. Individual links, yes, but each serving their own essential function but together comprising this single chain which is the gospel of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week we saw that in our natural sinful state all of us are described as those who are living according to the flesh. So in in verses 5 to 9 we have these words said, those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, they are carnally minded, which simply means to be fleshly minded, which is death. Verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's not subject to God's law, nor can it be. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And of course, what happens in the Christian is that God, by his Spirit, indwells us and he brings about this most remarkable and well, miraculous and regenerating transformation in your life, which is all of his grace and power. And he does that such that now the Christian is living according to the Spirit. And so they are those, verse 5, who set their minds on the things of the Spirit, because to be spiritually minded, verse 6, is life and peace. And so, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And yet, for a time, both the newness of that life in Christ, which is spiritual, and the oldness of the sinful body, these two reside together for a time and there is conflict and tension within us. The Christian, for a time, experiences the realities of both life and death. Verses 10 to 11. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness, and so on. But it is only for a time, only for the remainder of your earthly threescore years and ten or perhaps, in God's grace, a little more than that. The day is coming when you will experience in your body the same resurrecting power that Christ knew in his body. And we shall be raised without corruption in righteousness, set free forever from the presence of sin. We still struggle with the presence of sin, We've been set free from its power. We've been set free from its dominion over us, but we still struggle with its presence. But the day is coming when that will be no more. 
and we will live in perfect righteousness and holiness before God our Father in Christ Jesus. Jesus will present you, if you're a Christian, faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And and Paul now returns to our present situation and such is the extent and the magnitude of God's grace that Paul isn't finished yet in describing the blessings that you have as a Christian in Christ Jesus. And so the apostle continues at verse 12, therefore, and then you'll see uh, verse 13 begins with the word for, verse 14 begins with the word for, and verse 15 begins with the word for, and he's unpacking and unpacking and unpacking all that you have and now are in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing that we want to see this evening is active sanctification. That's in verses 12 to 13. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Christian lives in the pursuit of holiness. He says, therefore, verse 12, because of that, on account of which, which must mean that, therefore, these truths, if genuine and true in you, produce something in you. We are debtors in the sense of being under obligation to do something with this that God has done. On account of that, you and I are now duty-bound to give ourselves to it. And that, comes, that sense comes to us by the work of the Spirit. It simply has to be. It cannot be any other way. And it most certainly is not an obligation to carry on indulging the things of the flesh, to live according to the flesh, verse 12. No, that's the way of death. We're done with that in Christ. No, now you you are duty-bound before your God and Saviour and indwelt and empowered by his Spirit to give yourself to putting to death everything that's all still bound up with these dead, sinful bodies. We're to be being rid of those things. And you do that by pursuing holiness and righteousness and godliness. When Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, as he gets towards the end of that letter, Paul says something really helpful on this topic. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. He says this, Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness 
They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, and this is the point, but you, O man of God, woman of God, if that's who you are, but you flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, flee these things and pursue. That's a really important phrase and it's so helpful. If you put all your focus on the things you need to flee from, you'll really struggle. Why? Because all of your attention is on those things that your focus ought not to be on. The best way to go about fleeing those things that you need to be rid of is to turn around and pursue that which is right and good. For example, the way not to tell lies is to do what? Concentrate on telling the truth. Tell the truth and guess what? You won't tell any lies. The way not to covet another man's wife is to do what? Keep your eyes fixed on your own wife. If you're only looking at your own wife, you won't be looking at and coveting his. The way to flee those things that we ought to be fleeing is actually just to turn your back on them and pursue the things you ought to be pursuing. That's what to focus on. And take note, I I chose two examples which, of course, relate directly to the Ten Commandments because the Spirit of God will always lead you in accordance with God's Word. The Spirit of God will always lead you in accordance with God's will. And so, he who is the Spirit of truth will always lead you according to the truth of God's Word never against it. So what's the best way to flee all of the things which are of your old sinful nature? Well, to fix your heart and your mind on pursuing everything to do with your new nature in Christ. And by God's Spirit, that's exactly what you will do. That's exactly what you may do. And the Spirit of God actually puts that will within you. Even the will to do it comes from the Spirit of God. It's a prayerful submission. Give yourself to being faithful and you won't be faithless. Give yourself to being patient and you'll discover that all of a sudden your short fuse just got longer. Give yourself to being gentle 
and all the roughness of your former self will ebb away. Active sanctification. It's something that the indwelling Spirit of God prompts you in. It's something that He promotes in your life. In the life of every born-again believer, this is the Spirit's work within you. And the exhortation of the Scriptures is to give yourself to it. And you'll discover that as you give yourself to it and apply yourself to it, you're actually working with the Spirit of God and He is working with you. The two of you moving together for the same goals and in the same direction. This is the mark of living according to the Spirit. He gives you spiritual, godly, righteous appetites. And in pursuing those, well, there's no option but to turn your back on sinful, fleshly appetites. And so, in the Spirit of God, the Christian gives themselves to this active sanctification. This is part of God's Spirit's, God's Spirit's work within you. Four, verse 14, because there's another reason why this is important. There's another truth, which means that taking all of this on board is essential. For you are God's child. You are God's child. We are adopted children if we are in the Spirit. Verses 14 to 16. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. The Spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Some have said and they may well be right, that of all of the blessings that we receive in conversion, adoption is the highest privilege of all. Because in adoption, we have an indication of the height to which we have been raised from out of the depths of our sin. We were enemies with God. His wrath was upon us. There is no greater contrast than that God has made us to be his children. To be adopted means that you become a bona fide member of the family. To be adopted means that one who once had no part or place whatsoever in a family now has the same place, the same position, the same status as one who was born into that family. You have all the same rights and privileges as an adopted child as any child of natural birth. Except, of course, when it comes to God's family, there are none of natural birth in God's family because in our sinfulness, all of us are born as children of wrath, not as children of God. And even though Christ is God's Son, He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Christ was never born as God's child. 
He is the eternally begotten Son. Their relationship through all of eternity has been Father and Son. There's never been a time when they were not that. You, however, if you're a Christian, you are his adopted child. It is a glorious truth. It's a stunning truth. The lengths to which God has gone in blessing us in this salvation. So to be one of these spirit-led believers, and there's no such thing as a Christian who is not all the time being led by God's Spirit, to be a spirit-led Christian is to be a child of God. Those wonderful opening words of John in his Gospel from verse 12, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God because we weren't outside of Christ, but we may become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was all of God. It was all his doing. This work of adoption, verse 15, was performed and confirmed in you by God's Spirit. This work is seen in you and experienced by you as there wells up within you this recognition of God as your Father. And in your soul, you know that that now is how you stand before him, my heavenly Father. The word Abba is a, it's an Aramaic word, and it's not a, a formal, frosty Father. It's warm, it's loving, it's caring, it's an intimate daddy kind of word. And so there are two aspects to this adoption. There's the, the legal side of it, which is an irrefutable statement of fact. You are now God's child in Christ. But there's also this relationship side to it. God is now actually your father. It's more than a mere title. It's an actual relationship that he enters into with you. You are to him his child. He wants you to approach him as any child would approach their dad to be greeted in a warm embrace. You belong to him. You're his. And he is dad to you in the very best possible sense of that word. Whilst at the same time being the, the thrice holy almighty Lord God on high. It's just a remarkable thing. So then only those who are spirit-born and who are being spirit-led have any genuine claim to call upon God as their father. If you're someone who's not yet been brought to saving faith, if you do not know Christ Jesus as your saviour and Lord, God is not your father. You are not his child. 
but you may be if you will believe on Christ. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Because that's the other option. Why did Jesus say that to them? Well, because they were still in their natural sinful state. And all who are in that condition belong to Satan's family, Satan's kingdom, still of the flesh. All of us, Ephesians 2, are born as children of wrath. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's all of us outside of Christ. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, writes Paul. All of us. In the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is walking according to the flesh that's been spoken of in Romans 8. We were, by nature, children of wrath, just like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he has loved us. Love is just not some quality that God has. It's something that moves him to act towards us in that way. The great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. You know the words well. And then he says in the ages, that, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, which there is talking about that future inheritance which is yet to come, which Paul's going to talk about next in Romans 8. And being made alive in Christ, we are adopted as sons. But if you're someone this evening who's not yet been made alive, then that means only one thing. You are still dead in your sins. My friend, you need this glorious salvation by which God, by his grace, has secured for all sinners this wonderful salvation through Christ if you will lay hold of him by faith and turning from your sins, trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God commands all men everywhere to repent and to put their faith in Christ. So everything that Paul's been saying about the Christian believer, he's saying to those who are the adopted children of God. And keeping that in view, well, that just provides this, this next dimension to what it means to be a Christian, as Paul keeps just unfolding and unpacking all of these truths. So you could start back at verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, you see. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus. And you can add to all of the other truths that we've considered so far, because I'm his child. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because I'm his child. 
the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death because I'm his child. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why? Because we are his children. And so on through the whole chapter. There's just layer upon layer of glorious truth and reality about the blessings that God has bestowed upon you as a saved sinner in Christ Jesus. You are God's forever adopted child. So the disciples come to him, Jesus, how should we pray? Our Father, our Father. You should be so thrilled at being able to say that. Why would you never want to address him any other way? Father. Hence what Paul says in verse 15, crying out, crying out. This is a big deal. Or at least it should be to you. It's a big deal that you can approach God as Father. Only a Christian can dare say that. It's one of the great privileges which separates Christians from all other forms of religion to be adopted into his family as his child and to know him as heavenly father. And sometimes all Christians, male and female, are addressed as sons. Now in verses 16 and 17, Paul refers to us as being children, but in verse 14, he refers to all believers as being sons. And Paul says sons for a reason. In Bible times, as in many times and in many cultures, the line of inheritance went down through the sons in the family. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau, the two lads who would receive the blessing and one robbing his brother of it. Only very recently did the line of succession in our own royal family here in the UK get changed so that daughters in that family do not get pushed to the back of the queue. In terms of being in line to the throne, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, she has to take her place behind Prince Andrew and Prince Edward, even though she was born before them. The rule has now been abolished, so that that isn't the case for future princes and princesses. But in New Testament times, That's how it was. The inheritance being passed down through the sons. And Paul wants to emphasize this point of blessing that all of us are in. It doesn't matter whether you're a brother or a sister. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. All believers have this inheritance in equal measure. And so that's why on occasions Paul says, you all are sons because of this blessing that you've received. And this moves us on in verses 16 and 17 to this final section, an assured inheritance because you are God's children. 
the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs. You see, Paul is saying, because this, this. Because this, this. Because this, this. And it's just building and building and building. Heirs of God, that's the Father, joint heirs with Christ, the Son. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Your inheritance is certain. And part of the Spirit's work is to assure you of it. An inheritance is the estate of one, the resources of one being bequeathed, promised to another. An inheritance is that which is being held for you for a future time. An inheritance has legal status and protection. You'll sometimes hear of people going to court to contest somebody's will because these people over here are not happy with the share that those people over there have been given in the will. And so they take it to court. That's their only option because it's a legal matter and it has to be decided in court. It cannot be decided any other way. A will is legally binding. And God declares that if you are my children, which you are, then you have this inheritance. And, and there's nothing that can change that. This is certain. This is secure. This is eternal. You are an heir of God the Father. He is the one who gives. God the Father is the source of your inheritance and you're a joint heir with Christ, which is a remarkable statement too. The Father has prepared an eternal glory for his Son along with those whom his Son has redeemed. You're part of that and it's yours. Verse 17, joint heirs with Christ. So there is a sense, of course, in which the Lord Jesus is the principal heir. But we're united to him. And we are in him. And we have this adoption as children. And these two truths sit right next to one another. A child of God and in union with Christ. And that makes me an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. We now share with Christ that which is his. And the idea of inheritance, of course, is largely that which is certain but not yet. Because we, we have much now already in Christ. There's even more reserved for us for all of eternity. An heir is someone still waiting to enjoy that which their father has in store for them. Of course, there's a sense in which we're already enjoying many things that the father has for us. But there is more still to come. 
Now, of course, in this world and in this life, your inheritance, your inheritance can actually be quite fragile. So you might have a house in your family worth several hundred thousand of pounds. A few decades ago, that would have been unthinkable. But actually, for lots of people, that's quite normal nowadays. Several hundreds of thousands of pounds wrapped up in a piece of property. And it's all heading in your direction one day. But then the house has to be sold to pay for care, which of course is a very current topic of debate. And the balance is coming down and down and down. And then one of the zeros on the end disappears and the balance comes down and down and down. And then another zero on the end disappears and you're down from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands. And by the time you get to receive your inheritance, there's hardly any of it left. Worldly inheritances, well, they're very fragile. Some people receive them and then just blow the lot in prodigal living and it's gone. None of these things are an issue for the Christian. None of these things are an issue with God whose infinite resources and perfect strength and wisdom stand forever. Paul would say, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to everyone who's looked for and loved his appearing. And as you get to the book of Revelation, you can read through chapters 21 and 22 and you, you can read there something of the inheritance which awaits you. And God presents John with images which in some small measure project the glory of that which is to come. But our finite minds... Well, they can only imagine so much and they certainly cannot perceive what perfect and absolute and infinite majesty and holiness and purity truly is, which is as it will be when we get to glory. And we simply do not have the vocabulary to adequately describe it. But in all its everlasting wonder and glory, there is that place into which Christ will lead us, which even now is being prepared for us. And there we shall reign with Christ forever and ever. And that's what keeps us and holds us whilst for now we must even suffer for Christ's sake. That's the second half of verse 17. And the inescapable reality of being God's child in this broken, fallen, sinful world that actually these sons, these heirs must also share in the sufferings of Christ. We don't have time this evening to expand on that. So that's where we'll pause for this evening and that's where we'll resume, God willing, next week. Because as you can see, it continues into verse 18.
we're about to share the Lord's Supper together. What thankfulness there ought to be in our hearts. What amazement and wonder there ought to be in our hearts at the extent of what God offers us in Christ Jesus. How great a salvation this truly is. Innumerable blessings and privileges which are ours in Christ. To be God's child. To be a joint heir with Christ. Words fail us. But praise God, he never will. Let's pray. Our Father, oh Lord, that you would show us afresh the wonder, the glory, the joy of being able to come before the mighty God of heaven, holy, 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 and yet to do so as your child, beloved in Christ, to be an heir of all that is to come. Lord, receive our thanks, receive our worship, humble and quieten our hearts again in the, re the reality of these glorious truths of all that Christ has secured for us as now we remember him in this memorial supper. Cause us to look unto the Saviour with much thanksgiving in our hearts and be with us now, we pray, as we use this table to bring our worship to its close. Be with us in our midst by your Spirit. Oh, Spirit of God, do your saving, convincing work within our hearts and minds, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.